Uh, so start at Judges chapter 8 in verse 28. That's where we'll begin. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jeroboam Baal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god, who had rescued them from the hands of all enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brother in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all of this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-Bareth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was about this, told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honoured, to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you acted honourably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam Baals and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, but today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, 
and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted honourably and in good faith towards Jeroboam Baal and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam Baal, 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we uh, thank you now for your word and for your spirit. Uh, please, Lord, we pray that you would help us to focus on what you would have us uh, learn today. And, Father, that you'd be working in our uh, hearts, that you would be reshaping us, that you would be moulding us to be more the people you would have us be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's another saying of Jesus which has found its way into the idiom of our English language and rightfully so with good reason because it's uh, wisdom that we see played out in life uh, in many ways. Uh, when someone topples a leader and takes the position for themselves they might do okay for a while but what is, what is it that they keep on needing to watch. They need to keep watching their, their backs, don't they? All the time, because what they've done is they've set the precedent. They've established the rules by which leadership is gained. And so they are constantly anxious that what they have done to somebody else will be done to them. Uh, we see this uh, in various arenas of life. Um, it happens in the schoolyard. Uh, it happens on the corporate ladder. And most obviously, it happens in politics. Uh, one politician topples the leader, only to suffer the same fate themselves a few years later or sooner. And they take us all along for the ride. And it's fitting, isn't it? It's the... You, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And of course, it usually means that a position of power already exists. But at the time of the judges in Israel, no position of um, permanent leadership um, actually existed in Israel. There was no king in Israel. On occasions, God would raise up um, leaders, leaders like Moses, leaders like Joshua, leaders like the various judges, such as Gideon, but there was no ongoing position called king. In fact, um, when the people of Israel offered 
to make Gideon the king, why did he re- re- decline? Why did he say no? I think it was because they, someone else already had the position. Uh, God was king. God is their king. Or Israel already had a king, God. And yet, despite rejecting the position of king, Gideon did adopt the persona of a king. And we saw some hints of that last week uh, in the way that he treated people. Yet in Judges chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that during Gideon's life, Israel had 40 years of peace. And it's interesting to note that that's actually the last time in the whole book of Judges that Israel is described as enjoying peace. Uh, For although Gideon had done a good job uh, in terms of driving out the Midianites and so on, the legacy which he left, his legacy was flawed. And it was flawed in two ways. Uh, Firstly, do you remember at the beginning when God first spoke to Gideon that one of the big things that he did was that he destroyed the, the altar to Baal at his father's house and the Asherah pole that went with it? Uh, That was a pretty good thing to do, although he did it in the middle of the night so that no one could see him doing it. But at the end of his career, uh, he made a a gold ephod, uh, which he installed um, back in his hometown, where he earlier destroyed the temple, the altar to Baal. He replaced that with a golden ephod. Sort of, uh, sort of seems like a good thing to do. Seems like a godly thing to do, but. Uh, It was an object uh, and it was a snare for Israel because it actually led Gideon's family and and Israel as a whole uh, into um, idolatry as they idolised the ephod. And so the the seed was sown uh, for um, idolatry to again take root uh, in the land. And so, if you have a look at chapter 8, verse 33, everyone got that open, by the way? Um, Chapter 8 of Judges? Chapter 8, verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves, that's a strong word, prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of Of all their enemies on every side, they also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things that he had done for them. So God had been faithful to his covenant relationship with Israel, but now they had a new God, Baal Bereth, which, by the way, translates as Baal of the Covenant. Wow. I mean, it's no wonder that they no longer were kind to Gideon's family because, uh, uh, remember, Gideon also had another name, didn't he? Gideon was named as, it was Jeroboam, which means he contends with Baal. He's he's like an opponent of Baal. And it's interesting that in the text, that from here on in, Gideon is only referred to by that name, uh, Jeroboam. This is Gideon, uh, Gideon's God, uh, versus Baal. And so, whilst he was, uh, 
he'd done many good things. Uh, whilst he was a servant of the Lord, he had in fact uh, sown a seed which led to uh, the prostitution of Israel and a new God. Now, secondly, in verses 29 to 32, how had Gideon lived? Remember on TV, I saw a story about a guy who I think he lived in Bangladesh, if I'm not mistaken, but he had like about 20 or 30 wives. And uh, he had like about 100 kids and countless grandkids. And I thought to myself, that man has not established a family. That man has established his own personal little kingdom with himself sitting on the top as the ruler. It wasn't a household, it was a village. It was a whole town, he ruled. Now, in verses 29 to 32, how had Gideon lived? Well, many wives, 70 sons. And I guess that means he probably had a similar number of daughters, so probably around 140 children. It's probably about twice as many people as are here in this room right now and who knows how many grandchildren and how many great-grandchildren that uh, Gideon had this was less like a family this was more like a village and in the ancient world uh, it was a sign of wealth and status to have many wives in fact it's the lifestyle of a king plus he had a son by one of his servants uh, the servant who in verse 31 is known only as, and I quote, his concubine who lived in Shechem, uh, his girlfriend, uh, his mistress who lived in Shechem. We don't know her name. She's kept impersonal, but we know where she was from, where her family lived. We are, however, told the name which Gideon gave the son whom he had through uh, this uh, mistress. And his son's name was Abimelech or Abimelech, and which means, my father is king. How about that? What was Gideon thinking? What was he thinking? Well, we soon learn what his son Abimelech was thinking uh, as we think about <clears throat> his, home his mother's hometown of uh, Shechem and the things which uh, the relationship that he developed with the people of Shechem. Now, before we go further in the text, uh, I want to say this, that Shechem uh, was a very significant place uh, uh, for Israel for a number of reasons. First of all, remember the covenant which God made with Abram. Genesis chapter 12, where God promised, made, promised uh, Abram three things. So, a people, a land, and a blessing. And it's that covenant with Abraham, with Abram, which uh, is fleshed out throughout the whole of the rest of the scriptures leading towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a people, a land, and a blessing. That covenant that God made with Abram was made at Shechem, the area of Shechem, and it was beside what's called a great tree, the great the great tree of, she of Shechem. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, in Genesis chapter 34, the actual city Shechem 
was named after the son of its Hivite, he's a uh, ruler, he's a Canaanite man, he's a, from the, the Hivite tribe, uh, named Hamor. Now, you might remember his son, the young man Shechem, uh, because he's the guy who violated Jacob's daughter Dinah. Remember that? Uh, violated her. And uh, his father, Hamor, uh, decided to try to make a peace deal with Jacob, uh, a, a deal which involved the merging of his son and Dinah in a marriage, but more than that, a merger of their two peoples. That the people, the, uh, the children of the family of Jacob, who of course is, is Israel, uh, would merge with the people of Shechem. That was a merger offer which Dinah's brothers rejected and you remember how they did it. They slaughtered all of the men of the city of Shechem. After having first said, yeah, we'll do a merger with you, but if you're going to merge with us, all your men have to get circumcised. And then reeling from the pain of circumcision, uh, they were attacked and slaughtered. Thirdly, after Israel settled the land, uh, Israel renewed their covenant with God and the place where they did it was at Shechem. I want you to, um, if you wouldn't mind just going back to the end chapter of Joshua for a moment, to uh, Joshua chapter 24, it's a few pages back. And uh, Joshua 24 uh, is about this covenant renewal between Israel and God. And uh, after Joshua has he's gathered all of the people of Israel and he has recounted to Israel all of the good deeds that God has done for them in saving them out of Egypt, in, in protecting them, in preserving them, in leading them, in guiding them and in loving them. And then he has warned Israel against idolatry. Let's have a look at Israel's response in verses 16 to 18. Then the people answered, Far be it for, from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all of the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And before the end of this ceremony, they affirmed that commitment to God two more times in similar ways. And then they set up a large stone under the great tree in Shechem as a witness to their promise. However, in Judges chapter 9, Shechem is no longer known for its covenant faithfulness, but rather for its sin. It now hosts not just the, that 
stone tablet as a witness to their covenant with God, but it now hosts the temple of Baal Bereath, Baal of the covenant, rather than Yahweh of the covenant. And now Gideon's son, Abimelech, turns to his mother's family in Shechem for support. His mother's family, who, although Israelites, in chapter 9, verse 28, they will identify their heritage not through their ancestor Jacob, but rather they will identify their heritage with the city's pagan founder, Hamor. And that's profound, that they should do that. Gideon named his son, my father is king. Well, guess what? The son now wants the crown. In verses nine through to six, uh, verses three through to six of chapter nine, the the people of Shechem were only too pleased to oblige. They they were kind of happy about the idea that one uh, that that a son of one of their daughters, so therefore one of their sons, would actually become king. Um, he would need some uh, financial backing, so they uh, gave him some money, uh, seventy shekels. Uh, where did they get the 70 shekels from? They took it from the coffers, from the treasury of the temple of Baal-Bereth. And with that money, he hired a small army of thugs, a militia. Uh, a version we have here calls them reckless adventurers. Sounds cute, doesn't it? <laughs> There's nothing cute about this militia with whom, in chapter 9, verse 5, he went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone, bear that in mind, one stone, murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. One stone. He wiped out all of the other um, candidates or who he thought might have wanted to become candidates for the top job, for a position which he was about to create so that in verse 6, then all of the seconds of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree, the great tree where Abram and God had made his covenant with Abram, at the pillar, the pillar that they had set up as a testimony to their faithfulness to God, their king, in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Now, of course, if you want to wipe out your competition, you've got to do the job properly, don't you? You've got to finish off the job. Something Abimelech failed to do, problem was in verse 5, that Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, had escaped the cold-blooded butchery of the militia. Jotham, who in verses 7 to 21 becomes a prophet. He goes to a place overlooking Shechem called Mount Gerizim. 
Now, I understand that uh, if you go to Mount Gerizim today, that there is a, on the side of the mountain, there's a low sort of outcrop of rock, which uh, is, is like a platform. And uh, to this day, it's called uh, Jotham's Pulpit. Now, who knows? <laughs> it may have been that that's where Jotham stood. May not have been. Who knows? But when he shouted out to the people of Shechem, and he shouted out a story, a fable. A fable is like a parable, but one which personifies animals, or in this case, trees. Um, The school teachers can correct me on that later on, if you like. Um, But I understand that this is a fable. And it's a fable about some trees, who, which I guess a forest of trees, which want to have a king to rule over them. Problem is that the good quality candidates, the valuable trees, they're not interested in the job. The olive tree isn't interested. He says, oh, don't, why should I give up my oil so it can have sway over this rabble? Uh, nor is the fig tree interested with its sweet fruit. Why should I give that up so I can be the leader of ordinary trees? And the grapevine, well... Why should it sacrifice its wine, which brings cheer to kings and gods, for the sake of this kind of forest of trees? That is, it was a mistake to think that any of the 70 sons of Gideon actually wanted the crown. But there was one tree, the worthless, noxious thornbush. He's up for the job. He's interested. And so the trees anointed him as king. Chapter 9, verse 15. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Not much shade under a thorn tree. But if not, then here's the threat. Let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon, the great solid cedars of Lebanon. Mount Gerizim itself was a symbolic place. Uh, in, jo- in Joshua chapter 8, there was a, another uh, covenant renewal ceremony. And uh, Joshua had split up the entire people of Israel into two groups. Uh, One was located at the foot of uh, Mount Ebal and the other one was located opposite, the other half were located opposite at the foot of Mount Gerizim and what he orchestrated was for the two halves of Israel to shout across to one another uh, the blessings of God which would come upon them if they were obedient to God's word and the curses of God if they disobeyed God's word. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? There's a whole, so many people um, on these two mountains, near these two mountains, shouting the covenant blessings and the covenant curses to one another. And that's the point of Jotham's fable. In verse 19, uh, he says to them, Shouting out from Mount Gerizim, 
He says, if then you have acted honourably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today, oh, don't think that's happened, do you? No. Well, if you've acted, there's irony here. If you've acted faithfully toward Jeroboam and his family today, well, you know, blessings upon you. May Abimelech be your joy and may you be his as well. But there is no blessing. In fact, what follows in verse 20, it's, it's not an option for them, for he says, but if you have not let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. The, the deed has already been done. And the curse here. It's not an option for them. This is actually a pronouncement of judgment. This is what, in fact, will happen. There is heavy irony in this. Friends, I hope you can see that it would actually be difficult to find a place uh, more significant than Shechem to act for Israel to actually trample on the covenant of God. Difficult to find a more significant place to do that. And Israel's first experiment with kingship here was, was sinful. However, it's not just the covenant of God, it's not just their sinfulness in a, appointing a king. The primary focus of this passage is in fact the murder of Jeroboam's 70 sons, Gideon's 70 sons, for it was an evil which needed to be expunged from the land, from God's people. Who murdered the 70 sons? Well, Abimelech and his financial backers, the citizens of Shechem. And so in verse 22, Abimelech was now king. Apparently, it seems, over, over kind of all of Israel. And the honeymoon period, you know what I mean by honeymoon period, don't you? That's the, the period of grace you get uh, before the rot sets in. Uh, three years. Three-year honeymoon period. And often, that doesn't last that long usually, does it? <laughs> now, there would have been political reasons why things began, began to unravel. Uh, no leader can please everybody. All leaders are sitting ducks for critics. There would have been political reasons that we're not necessarily made aware of, but behind the scenes, God was at work. Verse 23. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. Now, what does this mean, that God sent an evil spirit? Um, uh, mm, God, evil does not originate in God. God is pure, God is holy. Uh, God does not promote sin, he does not promote evil. But in judgment, God does give people over to their sinful, uh, evil desires. 
And in that sense, he takes the constraints off. Uh, Satan does his work. We see that, um, we see that in Saul, don't we? When uh, <clears throat> uh, he was overcome by evil. And we see it in, in Romans where um, Paul says that because men knew God but chose to worship idols instead that God gives us over to our own sinful desires. And so we reap the we reap what we sow in that respect. And it's interesting to note, and this isn't clear in the English, but at this point the the writer of the Hebrew um, the Hebrew writer of Judges actually stops, you when he's referring to God, he stops using the personal name for God, which is Yahweh, and he uses only the, the general name for God, which is Elohim. Uh, as if the people of Shechem don't have that personal connection with God anymore, as if they are to be treated like pagans, not God's people. Abimelech's back is now exposed. And we see this particularly with the arrival in town of someone who is much like Abimelech. How about that? Um, Gal, the son of Ebed, and his family, they move into Shechem. And, uh, well, he's selfish, he's ambitious. And as the wine was flowing freely at a temple festival, a temple party, if you like, uh, well, Gaal decided to offer himself up as an alternative king. Verse 28. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, this is at this drunken party that they're having at the temple, who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son and isn't Zebul his deputy? Sir, here's that verse, serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your, your whole army. I'm up for the fight. I can do the job. Make me king. I'll do a much better job economy get back on track and you know promises promises etc now tyrants usually have their own personal army of thugs don't they um, who are uh, above the law like you know Hitler had his SS well Abimelech had his militia as well and so what follows is a grisly story of civil war in Israel as Abimelech loses his grip. Now, we didn't read that story. I'm just going to summarise it for you um, in three points. What happens next? Well, first of all, in verses 30 through to 45, when Abimelech uh, got wind of the plot uh, to dethrone him, he, uh, <coughs> he, he got his resources together and uh, with his army of men, his personal army of men, he ambushed the city of Shechem. Uh, so when, when you ambush uh, something, you conceal 
your men. He concealed his men in the fields, uh, and then he launched surprise attacks. He, he launched two surprise attacks over two days. Verse 45. In verse 45, all that day Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. Now, uh, scattering salt, it's, um, I was going to say that's like rubbing salt into the wound, but that would be um, <coughs> a bit too crass, I think. Uh, Scattering salt, uh, you do that in order to um, pronounce a curse on the city, that you're saying that this city should be a desolate wasteland from here on in. And that's what he's done. An uninhabited wasteland. Now, wasn't it Abimelech and the citizens of Shepin, weren't they supposed to be friends? But friendship which is based on ambition disloyalty and bloodshed it's never going to end well is it secondly in verses 46 to 49 uh, some of Shechem's residents sought refuge in the tower of the temple of Baal um, now it was around this temple in the, the tower that Abimelech's men then piled up masses of timber and lit the fire with a thousand people trapped inside. At the very place where earlier, three years earlier, they had crowned him their king. In Joshua chapter 21, remember when um, they were allocating the cities to the tribes and all that sort of thing, and uh, they allocated certain cities to be cities of refuge? where people who'd been, who had unintendedly killed someone could uh, find refuge in that city until their trial took place. Well, uh, Shechem was a designated city of refuge, but there was no refuge to be found in the Temple of Baal. The judgment with which Jotham had pronounced that fire would come out from Abimelech and consume them was fulfilled. Now, uh, thirdly, in verses 50 through to 55, uh, Abimelech and his men attacked and captured a nearby city uh, called Thebes. There was no glory in how Abimelech died. He didn't die with a sword in his hand, valiantly fighting off the air. No, remember, it was on one stone that he had slaughtered this, his 70 brothers, well, how fitting that it was beside one, one stone that he was killed. A stone, a, a millstone, which had been dropped from a tower by a woman. Hit him on the head. He knew he was going to die from it. So he called out to his another soldier and asked the soldier to slaughter him because... He didn't want the shame and the indignity of his legacy being that he was killed by a woman. Never mind the fact that he'd slaughtered seven of his brothers. <laughs> It'd be so shameful to have been killed by a woman and uh, sort of 
harks back to uh, the death of Sisera, doesn't it, for us? Dropped a stone, one stone dropped on his head. Now, it's very hard to find any encouraging life application from today's passage. (laughs) Any kind of syrupy thought for the day about this is how, as a Christian, you should treat your spouse or your children or, you know, have a better prayer life. This is gruesome. It's a chilling story of sin and its effects. But one which nevertheless teaches us about God's faithfulness to his people and to his plan. And to understand that, we need to... um, Look behind the curtain, uh, as the, the author of Judges allows us to do. He opens up the curtain so we can see what's going on behind the scenes. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Uh, Despite all of the the good which was done by Gideon, his legacy was a serious deterioration in Israel's relationship with God, uh, culminating in the massacre of his sons. And this was an evil which God would purge from the land. And purging... The evil meant purging people, purging Abimelech and purging the citizens of Shechem. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And here, nothing is accidental. This is not just unrestrained chaos. It seems it. But God has allowed that each person's evil be turned back upon them. And it was good for Israel. You see, uh, when Abimelech died, uh, you see this in verse verse 55, when everyone saw that Abimelech was dead, what did everyone do? They all went home. It was as if collectively they've all just woken up from a bad dream and now life would go back to normal. It shows us that sin does matter to God. That God does care how we live and whom we worship or what we worship. It shows us that God's judgment is real as also is his faithfulness. The proof of which we, show, we see most clearly on the cross of Jesus where all of the, the judgment which we deserve for our sin was actually meted out on Jesus instead. That's the covenant. That's the new covenant. That by the death of Christ, that all of the evil within us is paid for so that we can have a relationship with God forever, trusting in him, obeying him, living with him as our king.
It's the covenant that God has shown his faithfulness to us in. It's the covenant which we are to respond to in trust and in faithfulness. In Galatians chapter 6, we are warned, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And the one who sows to please his sinful nature, like Abimelech, like the citizens of Shechem, well, guess what? From that very nature, they will reap destruction. Do not be deceived. But, says Paul, the one who sows in order to please the Spirit, the one who has this trust in Christ, who lives in that covenantal relationship with God, well, that one will actually reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. God has made a covenant with us through Jesus. Be faithful to that. Let's pray. Father, there is a sense in which one sense in which we're not actually thankful for this passage uh, because it is so dreadful. And yet we are thankful for it shows us so clearly the sin of men and what life is like when we turn away from you. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness that's been displayed to Israel in this passage uh, that uh, Israel would be a holy nation that you would purge the sin but father we thank you mostly that your holiness your justice your love and your mercy is shown to us in the cross of jesus we thank you for that new covenantal relationship that we have uh, by the cross and through the spirit help each of us lord god to put jesus as our king and to uh, uh, to turn away from idolatry to be wholehearted in our love for you because of the great love you've shown to us. In Jesus' name, amen.